You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Dead authors, fresh takes, and the epilogues you never knew you needed. to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that once did a book report on the novelization of Face Off. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And today, we're going to talk about Victorian Gothic Romance. We're cutting this sausage party off at the pass, and we're bringing in some Brontes. Specifically, Charlotte Bronte. More specifically, Jane Eyre. RJ? So, we're not discussing Emily, Anne, Maria... I think there's more. Branwich or Branwell. Branwell. There there were a lot of Brontes. Manwich. Oh, and Elizabeth. Tito. Michael. No, no, no. no. You don't want to confuse people. There are six Brontes. Joe. Miley. Charlotte being the one that we're discussing today. Emily and Anne, also writers. Not talking about them. Branwell, Maria, and Elizabeth. They all died in like maybe their teens or younger. Um... So overall, there were six Bronte kids, even though I feel like we just named like a dozen. And yeah, uh, Maria and Elizabeth die of tuberculosis at age 11 and 10, respectively. Anne makes it to 29, Emily makes it to 30, Branwell croaks at 31, and Charlotte manages to hang on until the ripe old age of 38, which I guess makes her the strongest Bronte, or the Bronte Highlander. I don't know. (laughs) Because she was the successful one living on all the royalties, I'm sure. More than likely. The first and most important thing that you should know about Charlotte Bronte is that if you go on Wikipedia, the main picture they have of her looks like she's making a face at you, like she just watched you drop some food on the floor and then pick it up and go back to eating it. I'm kind of confused while we're talking about Charlotte Bronte because in my edition of Jane Eyre, it wasn't written by Charlotte Bronte. Oh. It was written by this person, Currer Bell. Currer. Yeah, that's the name on the cover, so I'm kind of confused. Okay, well, um, it's weird that you're confused since this was something that you specifically were researching for this episode. Megan? (laughs) RJ? There's something you need to know. Yeah, what's that? There's 23 personalities that live in my head. Oh, no. Please don't. We were recording these ahead of time. Don't date this shit with that fucking movie. But now... No. There's a 24th. Yeah? Is it one who knows how to do a podcast properly? Nope. Great. By the time this episode comes out, splits not even going to be a thing anymore. (laughs) The Bells, yes. Curber Bell, Acton Bell, and... Help me out here. Who's Ellis name? Bell. Ellis Bell. Also known as Charlotte, Anne, and Emily. It's it's not a super hard code to crack, people. Wow, that was pretty good. You know what? Mm. That one had it stuck with me in all my research. Are you, are you serious? But now that I look at it, <laughs> you're spot on. Yeah, how about that? I'm, I'm clever, what can I say? Pretty good. Hey, you're right yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> We're off to a real good start today. All right. So so tell me tell me about the uh the sisters Bronte and or Bill. Well, 
there was three of them oh, that just, wrote. Yeah. They decided to write under male pseudonyms because it was the 1800s. They figured if they wanted to get any kind of respect, they couldn't be using names like Charlotte, Emily, or Anne. That they would just be seen as female writers and their stories would be seen as feminine stories. Even though they didn't feel that they wrote feminine stories. And so they took on the name of their, I guess it would be their headmaster at the school they were all sent to that killed off like two of their siblings and made a couple of them sick that their parents had to take him out of. And then they write Jane Eyre, which we'll get into, where they make the whole school system over there in England not seem very good. But then they took on the name of the headmaster of the school. That's uh, where they get the bell from. And that does seem a little weird because, yeah, the the Brontes' experience with the uh, British school system was not great. And so not great that uh, Charlotte gets all piss and vinegar about it in the, the book, which we'll talk about. So, yeah, you got, I guess, maybe, like, no one would suspect it. I don't know. That's the only excuse I can think of off the top of my head because it is pretty weird. And while Anne, Emily, and Charlotte were all writing, originally at the time, some of the publishers thought... Currer-Bell was writing just under three different names. They really thought it was one person writing under three names. And the sisters had to prove to publishers, actually, there was three different sisters and not just Charlotte. Um, as publishers originally <laughs> thought that they had to go to London, all three of them, to be like, look, there's three of us and the three of us are writers. It's not just one guy reselling like different parts of the same story have you ever seen kerr acting and ellis in a room together i'm a lucky boy <laughs> i have gross i'm into necrophilia will you please stop <laughs> leaning into the mic to say weird shit no no we don't we don't tongue the expensive microphone this is not a visual medium oh that's why i have to let everybody know when you're being gross please stop touching it stop touching it it's very sensitive. It's going to pick that up. So one of the reasons that people or publishers or whoever might have thought that the uh, Brontes were but a single hive mind Bronte is that they kind of liked to write about similar themes. I mean, Emily Bronte wrote Wuthering Heights, Charlotte Bronte wrote Jane Eyre, and um, both of those novels are famous for something called, or for having something called a Byronic Hero. Is that kind of like an ironic hero? Uh, and isn't it Byronic? Don't you think? <laughs> Way to date this podcast, Meg. Yeah. <laughs> now people are going to think it's 1997. They don't know. You know what? I'd rather, almost rather it be 1997. Isn't it a Byronic? <laughs> don't you think? Yeah. A little too Byronic. 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 A little too Bionic. They were bionic heroes. They were half robot cyborg men, which honestly would have been better than what bionic heroes actually are, which is a literary term that means a huge asshole. Named for uh, Lord Byron, who is less famous maybe for anything he wrote and more famous for everything he tried to put his dick in. That was Lord his first name? Yes. Just like the singer. Exactly. A Byronic hero is characterized as someone who is brooding and melancholy and also just, just a jerk, just like a huge jerk. So between uh, Charlotte's Mr. Rochester and Emily's Heathcliff in uh, Rothering Heights, you get the sense that 
At least two of the Bronte sisters were looking for just a, a man that they could fix. They just want to fix him. Just a brooding, dickish, surly, DIY project of a guy. Those are my favorite kind of men, too. Well, then you, Charlotte, and Emily would have had lots to talk about. And meanwhile ends up writing a book called The Tenet of Wildfell Hall, which is a book about a woman who takes her kid and runs away from her terrible alcoholic husband. So, you know, at least one of the sisters had some sort of common sense. In addition to having a Byronic hero, the other trope that this novel is well known for is for being a building's roman. Ever heard of that one before, Megan? Uh, yeah, you know, like the Colosseum. And uh, the Parthenon. The amphitheater. Yeah, seen a lot of Roman buildings in my time. But really a piece of fiction that's referred to as a building's roman. It is basically a coming-of-age story. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's pretty... Okay. <laughs> so Jane Eyre is a building's roman, and... Neat. Sometimes... It's a novel of formation. Someone just growing up to be the best them they can be. Or a novel of education. Somebody learning something. Or, in the case of our protagonist, Jane Eyre, it's just having to deal with horrible situation after horrible situation because you just can't catch a break for your entire life. Until you strike it rich. Yeah, pretty much. So, uh, without further ado then, let's get into the story of Jane Eyre. The um, tragic orphan who falls in love with a nobleman above her station. But she is not your ordinary Victorian heroine. Oh. For one thing, she's ugly. Despite what Hollywood would have you think by casting only the prettiest ladies to play Jane for about the last uh, 100 years or so, characters literally go out of their way to point out over and over again that Jane ain't easy on the eyes. In fact... When we first meet Jane, uh, when she's 10 years old and orphaned and living with her shitty extended family, the Reeds, who all torment her, two of the house servants have a conversation about how, you know, they'd pity poor Jane if she was like a pretty little Shirley Temple type of orphan instead of someone who, I have to assume, looks more like Quasimodo based on how they go on about it. So hot. <laughs> yeah. You just watched the Hunchback in Notre Dame was like, oh, Yes. Nothing a paper bag won't solve. <laughs> I don't have a response for that. Um, gosh. All right, so Jane Eyre's kind of a, a long, dense novel. I mean, like, you know, it's no Finnegan's Wake or whatever, but it's pretty involved, so strap in and let's uh, let's get Victorian in here. Uh, so Jane is a ward of the Reeds. Lord of the Reeds. Or Lord of the Reeds. Or Lord, <laughs> Lord of, of the, the Rings. Rings. <laughs> so Jane lives with the Reeds because they're her cousins. Um, Mr. Reed was her mom's brother. And when Mr. Reed died, his dying wish to his wife was take in young Jane and treat her well and all that fun stuff. Oi. Take in young Jane. Oh, gosh. And all that fun stuff. Oh, dear. So Mrs. Reed respects her late husband's wishes and decides to treat Jane as her own child. No. 
No, that doesn't happen at all. This is a Victorian novel, and that means the adults are all terrible. And Mrs. Reed is no different. She hates Jane, and she lets her kids bully Jane and beat up on her. And when Jane has the gall to fight back, they lock her in the room that Mr. Reed died in. Because reasons. They call it the ugly room. (laughs) No, actually, they call it the red room. And so Jane absolutely flips out and thinks she sees her uncle's ghost in there because she's 10 and she knows that he died in that room and then she passes out. She wakes up in her bed under the watchful eye of a doctor named Mr. Lloyd, who's the first nice person Jane has ever known in basically ever. And he starts asking Jane questions about her life with the Reeds and she tells him what a shit fest it is and he's like, well, why don't you go to school instead? And Jane's like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do that. And Mrs. Reed is like, well, it would get you out of my hair, but also I hate you. So I'm going to let you go to school, but I'm going to be a huge bitch about it. And she does, slash is. She finds the worst school ever, one who is run by a dude named Mr. Brocklehurst, which I feel like that's just um, going to let you know right off the bat what kind of guy he is, you know. I don't think there's ever been, like, a lovable kind of character. It's like, oh, it's good Mr. Brocklehurst. He loves all the children. Ugly children get ugly Brocklehurstes. <laughs> That's so mean. So, I don't know, the, the thing with Mr. Brocklehurst is that he just, he just hates kids, I guess, and, like, feeds off of their sadness. Because I don't know how else to explain Lowood, which is the school he runs that Jane gets sent to. Everything there sucks. The food, the clothes, the beds, the teachers. Girls are freezing and starving and getting in trouble for having curly hair, because how dare them, and also dying en masse from typhus. That too. But Megan. Yes, RJ? There is one good thing. One good thing in Lowood, apart from the typhus? That hottie, Helen Burns. She burns away into all our hearts. She d- she does burn her way into all our hearts, and she's also the only thing that makes Lowood bearable for Jane. She's a, a saintly goody-two-shoes of a girl that Helen, always talking about how she just wants to be good and love God, and that Jane should be good, and uh, she just kind of takes all the terrible crap that happens to them with grace that Jane admires, but is also just like, really? Like, really, Helen? So, eventually, Helen and Jane become best friends, and they grow up together, and then they run away, Thelma and Louise-style, to have Victorian lady adventures, and then they fall in love. Biffles! Except that's not what happens. Oi! Not Biffles. No, I mean, that's in my Jane Eyre fan fiction. But no happiness is allowed in the life of a tragic Victorian orphan child, and so Helen actually dies of tuberculosis in Jane's arms. See... What makes that scene really sad is she died in the arms of an ugly person. (laughs) In the arms of an ugly girl. We fast forward from that horribleness to eight years later, where Jane is still at Lowood, but now working as a teacher. But she's bored, and also Lowood is still garbage town. So she puts an ad in what is essentially Victorian Craigslist to see if anyone will hire her to be a governess. Do you know what a governess is, RJ? A female governor. No. It's uh, basically your teacher, but if your teacher lived at your house all the time. That'd be okay if the teacher's hot. Uh, That's a problem in this novel. Moving on. Jane's ad gets answered by a lady named Mrs. Fairfax, who wants Jane to come to a place called Thornfield and teach a little French girl named Adele. 
Rolling through the deep. You tried real hard on that one. It's a good reach. <laughs> so Jane's stoked to finally leave Lowood, but it's only when she's nearly at Thornfield that she considers the fact that, like, she knows literally nothing about these people and this job, and she could just be on her way to get, I don't know, murdered? Lucky for her, though. She's old enough now. She's 18 to be considered a tragic Victorian adult, and things tend to work out slightly better for them. But, you know, not by much. At Thornfield, she meets Mrs. Fairfax and Adele, who says, Hello, it's me. I was wondering. Okay, he's got stop. Don't look at me like that. Is this when Lionel Richie walks in? No, the, the other Adele song. And starts touching everyone's faces. That would be preferable to what actually ends up happening, but. And then he touches Jane's face and he goes, Whoa! <laughs> I'm blind. Okay, you know what? In the video, it's a woman touching Lionel Richie's face who's blind. Lionel Richie isn't blind. (laughs) Anyway, Jane learns that Mrs. Fairfax is actually just the housekeeper at Thornfield, and the master of the house is a mysterious man named Mr. Rochester, who is usually abroad somewhere doing mysterious rich dude things, and just sort of has this small French child who needs some educating. We. Good, good addition. Good way to, way to contribute. Thornfield is a big old empty manor, and while it's very fancy, it's also super creepy, and only becomes more so when Jane learns about the closed-off third floor that we never go to, and the eerie disembodied laughter that we don't acknowledge, and also the weirdo servant lady Grace Poole, who seems like she's hiding something terrible. But in the end, Jane's like, eh, whatever, fuck it, still beats Lowood. Jane's really into Chekhov's gone. All of them. It's a whole arsenal. <laughs> Chekhov's entire gun cabinet. So everything's pretty chill for a while, and, you know, we can't be having that. So Jane goes for a walk one day and sees a mysterious man fall off his horse like a dipshit. And she goes to help him, and he's a rude dick about it. And also Jane is just struck by how super unattractive he is. She even says that if he were a pretty dude, she might not have even been able to, like, go up and give him a hand because, like, oh no... He's too pretty. But uh, he apparently has a face like a broken brick wall, and Jane is into that. Cracky. (laughs) Uh, So he continues to be super rude to this lady who's stopping to give him a hand, and then he just rides off before she can find out who he is. But you know who he is. Her long-lost brother. Who else could be as ugly as her? It's Mr. Rochester! He's back from doing whatever the hell it was he was doing. And he and Jane very quickly get along really well, in a way. Jane likes that he's a blunt, rude asshole because she says she doesn't trust polite people. And Rochester likes Jane because she backsasses him. And thus, a relationship begins to bloom. And at some point in all this, he's like, Oh, by the way, Adele is the daughter of this French lady that I used to do a sex with, and she might be my kid? Maybe? Not sure? Mm-hmm. But more importantly, they flirt in the British fashion by constantly being snarky and terrible to each other and also making many longing looks. And oh, by the way, remember how Jane is 18 and Rochester is 35? Yeah, Rochester's 35. It's gross. No. Yeah? You want to you wanna tell me why that's not gross? I, I can't even be like, that's a high schooler dating a third grader, because no, that's like a grad student dating a third grader. No. Or a high schooler dating a zygote. It's an adult dating another an adult. 
Another adult. Another n- adult. It's a 35. It, it's a excuse 35 me. I'm going to stop it. It's an adult dating another adult. It's a 35-year-old dating a teenager. Anyway, one night, Jane wakes up because she hears someone outside their door. And no one's there, of course, but the hallway's all smoky, and oh shit, Mr. Rochester's bed and curtains and also himself are all on fire. Fire! Jane puts out the fire and saves him and is like, Grace Poole did this because she's quiet and weird and kind of ugly and wow, Jane, that kind of sounds like you. Maybe try being a little self-aware there, Jane. Jeez. But Rochester's like, yeah, maybe, that makes sense. And it's all super weird. And the next day, everything's normal. And everyone's like, oh, that Mr. Rochester sleeping next to lit candles, that rascal. And Jane is like, what What the hell is even happening? But eventually gets over it because more important things are going on. Oh. Yes. Like Rochester leaving to go hang out with some hot to trot rich lady named Blanche Ingram. How hot is she? She's pretty hot. Like, like she is as proportionately hot as he is ugly. Like, Jane actually points that out. <laughs> so what does she see in him? Um, Blanche kind of makes this whole... Well, here, actually, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself oh. here. So Rochester brings Blanche and a bunch of other, like, rich people friends of his back to Thornfield, and they have a party that goes on for, like, several weeks, because that's a thing Victorian rich people do. And at some point in that party, Blanche says, you know... Oh, I don't want, like, a handsome man. I'd love an ugly man who would worship the very ground I walk on. And then she sort of looks pointedly at Mr. Rochester. And Mr. Rochester actually flirts back with her super hard to make Jane jealous because he's, like, some kind of dipshit teenager. No! No! He's a grown man in his 30s trying to make an 18-year-old jealous. I know what this book is called. Oh? Fifty Shades Darker. Fifty Shades of, of Jane Eyre. <laughs> yes. Of Rochester. Ew. Also, Mr. Rochester. <laughs> Jane's here for you. Uh, also, if, you know, that wasn't weird enough, you know, I mean, it does get a little bit Fifty Shades, because at some point, he disguises himself as a gypsy woman and pretends to read Jane's fortune and make her admit that she loves him. She didn't realize? No. He no. was... Dressed up as a gypsy? Literally, he does this. No one in the party realizes it. Like, they go in one by one to get their fortunes told, and no one's like, wow, this old gypsy woman looks a lot like the dude whose house this is. So, I mean, I guess he was, like, a really good actor. That's that's something positive for him. (laughs) I guess, you know, he was bored, and TV hadn't been invented yet, and what else is there to do but dress up like a gypsy woman and trick your friends. Uh, things do get exciting, though, because this guy named Richard Mason shows up, and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm an old friend of Rochester's. You know me. I'm Richard Mason. I'm everybody's buddy. And he kind of forces himself in, is like, I'm going to spend the night, because I'm, I'm Richard Mason. I'm your friend. And uh, the night that he stays there, he sneaks up to the forbidden third floor, and he comes back downstairs stabbed and also bitten. A lot. Is it Adele? Is it Lionel? <laughs> yeah, they're keeping Lionel Richie on the third floor. Was it Chekhov? <laughs> no, not yet. Che- Chekhov's loading his gun right now. So Rochester asks Jane to, like, take care of Richard. Take care of? No, like, 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 dab at the blood. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Oh, God. 
And she's starting to hit her threshold for, like, unexplained weird shit, but before we can find out anything, a convenient plot contrivance arrives in the form of a letter informing her that her shitty aunt, Mrs. Reed, is dying. Isn't it bionic? Don't you think? So even though Rochester tries to be all controlling and keep Jane at Thornfield for the admittedly sound reasoning of your aunt is the mayor of asshole town, why do you want to see her? Eventually Jane leaves and goes to go uh, visit her. So Mrs. Reed is basically on her deathbed and... So basically on her deathbed, so she's hovering above it, below it, next to it? Several inches above it. Okay. And uh, in and out in terms of lucidity. And so she admits to Jane that she was awful to her all those years because she was jealous that her husband, Jane's uncle, loved his sister and his niece just so much. And it made her super insecure. And so Jane forgives her because, yikes. She dies, and Jane heads back to Thornfield, where Rochester continues to play weird mind games with her, making her think that he's going to marry Blanche so that he can see her be sad about it, like some kind of weird Victorian negging. Isn't it brown? Oh, like, stop calling it bryonic. Byronic. <laughs> Isn't it bionic? Eventually, they're talking in the garden, and Rochester goes from, I'm sending you away to be a governess in Ireland to marry me, Jane, I love you, in about ten seconds flat. And Jane is like, are, are, are you fucking with me? Is that what this is? Am I being punked? But nah, it's for real. And then they make out. And then that night, the tree they were making out under is destroyed when it gets struck by lightning. But I'm sure it's fine. I mean, when has ominous symbolism come back to bite anyone in the ass on this podcast? Never. No. So Jane and Rochester are going to be married. And it's great, except it's kind of not. Because Rochester and uh, Jane have gone from being backsass pals to Rochester being like, you are my special little doll and I'm going to dress you up in fancy outfits. And I don't care if it makes you super uncomfortable because we'll be married. And ugly together. Yep. Jane's like, you know, we'll, we'll work it out when we work it out. We're going to get married. So they go to the church for the ceremony, and just like in every movie ever, the priest gets to the speak now or forever hold your peace bit. And then guess who shows up and is all, I object! Adele. No. Lionel. Keep trying. Chekhov. It's Richard Mason! And Jane's like, why? And Richard's like, Rochester's already married to my sister, Bertha, who he keeps locked in the attic at Thornfield and who bit and stabbed me that one time. And Jane's like, Oh, that's a pretty good reason. Also, what the fuck? It turns out that, yes, Rochester is still legally married to the mostly feral crazy lady who he keeps in the attic and who's also the one who lit him on fire that one time. No one else knew about her except Richard and also Grace Poole, who was paid to take care of Bertha and keep her a secret, and I bet you feel like an asshole for suspecting her now, don't you, Jane? So Rochester's like, okay, yeah. Bertha is technically my wife, but, like, it was a weird time in my life. We were all in Jamaica. My dad tricked me into marrying her. And then I couldn't get a divorce after she went crazy because apparently there's a rule against that. What happens in Jamaica stays in Jamaica. No, what happens in Jamaica ends up locked in your attic. I think that was a Bob Marley song. And so Rochester says, you know, he just got really bummed out that he couldn't divorce her and just kind of humped his way across Europe and then came back home and met Jane. So he says, uh, do you want to send Adele off to boarding school and run away to France and pretend like we're married for realsies? Like ugly people? Yeah, like ugly people. They fit right in in France. And Jane says, no, you have a secret wife that you've been keeping in the attic. Goodbye forever. Now, to defend Rochester, 
Where should he have been keeping the secret wife? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not the attic the basement <laughs> if it's a finished basement that might be a little nicer maybe the rec room or the rumpus room or maybe just don't have a secret wife that you're keeping in a room somewhere just let her run free exactly free range wife she might get hit by a car mm, that's true you gotta have her in a yard then with a nice fenced in area just just give her room uh so jane leaves him even as rochester says we could have had it all. <laughs> no, that's what Adele would have said. Fine, whatever. But Jane's post-Thornfield plan... Last dance is, of Mary, Jane. <laughs> that is Tom Petty. Yeah. <laughs> He's not in We're dealing with book. Jane here. Jane's post-Thornfield plan is a terrible one because it's essentially pick a direction and start walking until you're dead. And she does this, and it goes about as well as you'd think. And she faints and walks and faints and walks for a good long while before stumbling across the home of the River's siblings, Diana, Mary, and St. John. Except that you're supposed to uh, pronounce it like Sinjin, and I have no idea why. Like, it it's, reads as St. John, but everyone says Sinjin? This is like one of those Dr. Jekyll things. Yeah, something like that. So because Jane just looks so pathetic, they take her in like she's a stray cat or something, and Jane just charms them with her wits and witticism and also by refusing to answer even the most basic questions about who she is or where she's from. And why are you so ugly? <laughs> I'm sure they asked her that what? too. What's wrong with your face? <laughs> <laughs> and so they all become friends. Except Sinjin, because he's mostly busy, like, preaching and helping the poor and stuff. And Jane's really into, like, what an impassioned and devout kind of dude he is. But he acts very cold and weird towards her. But he does get her a job as a teacher in the village school. And everything kind of calms down and stuff. And we can't have that, can we? I guess not. No. So it's revealed, through more convenient plot contrivances, that Sinbin and his sisters are actually some more of Jane's long-lost cousins. Yay! More family! That sucks less, I guess. Woohoo! Except, not really. Because Slim Jim starts hanging out with Jane more, and giving her weird, awkward, totally platonic wink-wink kisses. And then one day, out of the blue, Sip Bip is all, Hey, I'm gonna move to India and do missionary stuff. Become my cousin wife and come with me. As cousins would do. And Jane's like, um, No? I'm pretty sure you don't even love me. Like, I'm pretty sure you like this Rosamond chick. And um, I'm down to go do good in India and stuff, but can we go as, like, co-workers? Friendly acquaintances? Pen pals, maybe? And so Slapchop is like, yeah, it's true, I don't really love you, but Rosamond uh, would be a terrible missionary wife, and you're just sort of hardworking and dutiful and ugly. So the only way we can go to India together is if you'll be my cousin wife. So just say yes already. Does she say yes? Well, they go back and forth on this for a while with Jane pointing out again and again that she is, like, into the idea of going to India and doing missionary work, but only as, like, Jesus pals and not his wife. And Wow just kind of ignores her and keeps being, like, cousin wife. For an ugly woman, she gets a lot of people to propose to her. It's true. There's something about that milkshake that's just bringing them boys to the yard. That was a bad joke. I don't know why I said that. I regret it. It's her backside. <laughs> that's true. You know what? She's probably got a sweet butt. 
So it gets to the point where Jane is about ready to marry him just so he'll shut up about it. But suddenly, just then, she hears a voice on the wind calling out to her. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that one sounded like you were dying. Jane, <laughs> Jane, it's me, Rochester. Oi, oi, Jane, it's me, Rochester here. I'm back. He never went I found you, my sweet little Jane. Isn't it Byron? <laughs> you left me and I found you. Yes. Jane hears Rochester, who is somehow so annoying that his whining transcends space and time to reach Jane's ears. So Jane leaves Nip Slip behind and returns to Thornfield, but she finds nothing but smoldering ruins. It turns out that Bertha was tired of being locked away in an attic and had voiced her displeasure by burning the house down. You could say she set fire to the rain and watched it burn as she also died. That's a bad strategy, I'll be honest with you. You don't want to burn down the house while you're still in the house. Yeah, you know, I don't think she really thought it through all the way. But uh, being locked in an attic probably doesn't do wonders for your problem-solving skills. So Rochester survived the fire, though, although he lost a hand and also went blind. Uh, Still, though, Jane tracks him down, and when she finds him, she pretends to be a servant because he's blind and can't tell it's her, which is kind of screwed up, but he pretended to be a gypsy lady, so this is kind of par for the course in their relationship at this point. She's in for the long con. So she quits fucking with him eventually, and he's like, so even though I'm blind and down a hand, Bertha's tote's dead, so will you marry me? And Jane apparently has no problem with the secret attic wife thing now that she's good and dead and agrees to marry him. Even going so far as to say that she likes him more now because he actually needs her. Which is going to become much less romantic when he needs her to help wipe his ass. Now, I don't remember this plot point in particular. Did Jane ever see the body of Bertha? No, I don't think she did. So she's just taking the blinded one-handed man's word for it (laughs) that the wife that he was kept hidden for however many years is now no longer in the picture well i mean i think because she finds out from like someone else before she even goes to to find rochester of what happened in that birth is dead but i don't think at any point we ever actually see the body so what you're saying is she might come back she might still be out there hungry for revenge that's why she's Big Bertha. Jane Eyre 2, Bertha Harder. So Jane and Rochester are finally together, and then they have a son, and eventually Rochester can see again, because the power of love, I suppose, and then also Sneep Snop dies in India. And that's that's not even a joke, that's how the novel really ends. Like, so Rochester and I are happily married, and we have a kid, and he can see again, and also Space Jam dies in India like a punk. The end. Which is sort of weird. But that's it. That's the end. That's Jane Eyre. Yeah. Villains never die so easily. I think Bertha's still alive. 
maybe Bertha is alive and she goes to India and her and Slim Jim team up and they go after Rochester and Jane for vengeance. Yeah. I'd read that. I mean, and there have been, you know what, it wouldn't it wouldn't be the first or even the weirdest sequel to Jane Eyre, because that's the thing about Jane Eyre. There are a billion adaptations of it, and sequels, and prequels, and reimaginings, and all kinds of crazy stuff, but, uh, oh, I know, before we get into that, RJ, there was something that you wanted to talk about, about what happened when Jane Eyre was sort of first published. Well, you left out the big part here. The big part. Yeah. Jane gets mucho dinero. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I left that out because, like, there was eight million different things to talk about. And it's a very, 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 very thin thread in the story. Like, at the very beginning of the story, it's like, oh, also Jane might have another uncle somewhere on, like, her dad's side, maybe. And then, like... 50 pages later, when she goes to see her aunt, it's like, oh, I was also hiding a letter, maybe, from that one uncle that you totally have somewhere. And then, finally, when she's at her shiny new cousin's house with the rivers, she finds out that this uncle that we've heard about maybe two times and never seen has died. And he has left her a, a handsome sum of 5,000 pounds that she, like, shares with her friends, and then she comes back to Rochester, and she's like, oh, I have money now, so, like, I'm not a charity case. And, yeah, I left it out because it's like, eh, who cares? Well, I think it's kind of important, which we'll talk about. And the 5,000 pounds today would be the equivalent of about 2 million bucks. Holy so, shit. Pocket change. Jane is ballin'? Yes. Nice. And like you said, they kind of just slip it in there, but we'll talk about that. Okay. We'll talk about it right now. <gasps> I mean, one of the things uh, that people take away from the book and I want to focus on is the feminism aspect. That some people try to paint Jane and Jane Eyre as a novel in total as a book that shows women being strong, women being independent. But then you can kind of counter that reading that throughout the entire novel, she's dominated by men. And even in the end, the only reason she goes back to Rochester is now she's rich, maybe richer than him. And she finally feels equal to the one-handed, blinded guy. And so I think it's important that they do slip in that she does have the money because it's only after that where she thinks she's equal. Gotta have money to have status. Man, now I'm just picturing her like pulling up in like a Rolls Royce or something and just being like, hey, Rochester, get in the fucking back. Another thing about the novel, if it's not clear from our synopsis and if you've never read it, it's told retrospectively from Jane's point of view. And there's always the question if she's a reliable narrator. And it's interesting to think about how she's portraying the different characters and her own motivations. And that the fact that she makes the $2 million inheritance, you know, just a small part she throws in there, you know, could be room for further investigation and discussion. And that's also probably why there are, like, a huge number of adaptations, and when I say huge, I mean, like, uh, dozens, that um, are just Jane Eyre, but from different perspectives. So there's, like, let's hear a Jane Eyre from Rochester's perspective, from Adele's perspective, from Grace's perspective, from the perspective of the potted plant that sat in the main hall of Thornfield. Uh, but perhaps the most uh, famous 
sort of reimagining of Jane Eyre is the one that kind of looks at the perspective that I think everybody wants to see the most, which is the woman who is being secretly held in the attic. And that is in the novel Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rhys that was published in 1966 and says, yeah, hey, let's get Bertha's side of the story, maybe. Uh, so in White Sargasso Sea, we follow Bertha, who's not actually even named Bertha. Her name in the story is uh, Antoinette. And she details how she has this, like, traumatic, tragic childhood where her mother goes crazy and, like, her one of her brothers dies. And that she is essentially, like, forced into marriage with this weird, gross English dude who says, Hey, I'm gonna name you Bertha now because reasons. And you're gonna come live with, uh, live with me in England, leaving behind the only life you've ever known. And what? You don't immediately like England? You must be going crazy. Come live in my attic now. And so it's interesting because one of the things about in Jane Eyre is, you know, Bertha and Richard are from the West Indies, but it's assumed that they're white because it was, you know, lousy with British people because, you know, colonization and all that stuff. But there's nothing that says they are not white. And so in White Sargasso Sea, Bertha is explicitly uh, non-white. She's Creole. And so it turns this story into one of colonization and power dynamics, and it's just a really interesting way to kind of take a, a look at it. It revitalized uh, Jean Reese's writing career, and, you know, it, it gave a voice to the quote-unquote mad woman in the attic, and eventually they made a film version of it, and but it was also, like, rated NC-17 at first for sexiness, so I think it might have missed the point. And also they made Rochester a hot dude, and, and that's wrong. And that's also a problem with every single film adaptation of Jane Eyre ever. There's only beautiful people in Hollywood. Oh, actually, it's funny you should mention that. So, so yeah, they, they, they just keep casting, you know, hot people, despite the fact that, you know, the whole thing about them as a couple is that they're ugly and socially awkward, and they can only express their love for each other through sarcasm and, like, passive-aggressive behavior, and... I think the closest thing we have to, like, a non-hot Rochester is, like, Orson Welles, I guess. He's got kind of a pudding face. But even then, like, he's not an ugly guy. So we came up with some alternate casting choices for Jane and Rochester. Um, so for Rochester, we said uh, Steve Buscemi, Nick Nolte, but, like, mugshot Nick Nolte, not, like, Nick Nolte in 1979 when, like, People Magazine thought he was attractive for some weird reason. Gary Busey. Uh, John C. Riley, which I actually feel kind of bad about now. I feel like that's mean. <laughs> and um, Willem Dafoe. All very good-looking men. So handsome. It was much harder uh, coming up with women to play Jane, probably because it's harder for not super hot women to make it in Hollywood than it is for dudes. Dudes can be ugly in Hollywood. Women, eh, not so much. So the best we could come up with was Shelley Duvall, Emma Thompson, when she has her Nanny McPhee uh, prosthetics on. Charlize Theron in Monster, when she also has facial prosthetics on. And Mick Jagger. Indeed. So yeah, someone make an adaptation of Jane Eyre where they are both fugly as hell. Because you know what? That would be accurate and what Charlotte Bronte wanted. So, RJ. Sup? Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre. Good or bad? 
just think it. Good. Because. It's good. One of these days, I'm just, I'm not going to be responsible for what I do to you. Megan. RJ. Jane Eyre. That's a book, all right. Good or bad? I mean, I guess it's, it's good, you know? It's, 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 it's good. Um, it's very, you know, the, the best stuff is the, the stuff at Thornfield where you get, like, I mean, all right, when I say best stuff, I'm speaking pretty subjectively. The stuff that I like best is when Jane is living at Thorfield and you don't know who, what this weird thing going on at the manor is. You know, it's just like there's weird laughter, there's weird occurrences and stuff happening, and that's sort of the, the gothic part of the book. And that's the interesting part because it's just written in a way that's like very ghostly and it's really cool when you're reading it for the first time and you don't know what's going on and you're kind of in Jane's position. Um, I think I was in college when I first read it. So I was like 18, 19, I think. And so I was super into that bit. And then when she runs away and is, you know, hanging out with like her cousins and stuff, I start, I stopped reading and kind of started skimming and was just kind of like, "Eh, eh, be my wife, be my wife, win some money. Oh, and Bertha lit the house on fire. So yes, Good book. Ultimately, he's marriage in Victorian conventions. Also, Byronic heroes are the worst. Not according to the Brontes. Isn't it Byronic? Bertha's still out there. <laughs> I'm excited for the sequel. Charlotte, <laughs> get on it. And so that about wraps things up. Uh, remember, if you like us, if you love us, if you want some more of us, so please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, or you can check us out on our website that we have that really by the time this goes up, we'll have had from the beginning, but that's, you know, that's kind of the risk you run when you record several episodes ahead of time, but it is www.ohnolitclass.com. So O-H-N-O-L-I-T-C-L-A-S-S.com. You can also check us out at Class on Facebook, ohnolitclass.tumblr.com, and Oh No Lit Class on Twitter. It's everywhere. Yeah. Ciao. I'm Megan. RJ. We out. Out. We love you. Bye. Okay. Yeah. Bertha is my wife. But, like, it was a... Stop pulling on your nipple. What the fuck? <laughs> I know what's going after the credits now. <laughs>